Ephesians chapter 6. We do want to remember that our brothers and sisters at our Ventura campus will be tuning into this. Let's let them know we love them. Ephesians chapter 6. We are continuing from the text that we looked at last week, verses 5 through 9. The title of this morning's message is Reconsidering the Way We Work. If you've got a job or you employ others, this message is for you. Reconsidering the Way We Work. Let's read the text again. We read it last week. Let's read it again and then we'll talk about how to apply this to our lives. Ephesians chapter 6 starting in verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Lord, we thank you for your holy word, which is inerrant and infallible, living and active true and wonderful. We thank you for the way that it confronts our lives and encourages us, teaches us and rebukes us, and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, it also transforms us. We thank you that this morning as a family, we can open your word and openly talk about it. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and that you steady our feet to walk a course of obedience before you. You would save us from just being hearers of the word and by your spirit, you'd cause us to be doers of the word. Lord, as you have by grace and for your own glory entrusted me with the task of preaching this morning, we ask that you'd please anoint me for your glory and your purposes. That this sermon would have nothing to do with me and everything to do with your truth and your spirit and your power and your glory and your kingdom. That your will would be worked in our lives. We ask this together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we dealt with the question that the text obviously brings up, which is, does the New Testament condone slavery? And we discovered as we looked at the text closely that that's not the case at all. What Paul is doing here is actually radically subverting the idea of slavery. And there's the principles of this text and the rest of the New Testament that would eventually lead to emancipation throughout the world and that eventually still needs to lead to emancipation throughout the world as we're aware of the fact that there are 27 million slaves worldwide today. So for millions of people, there's an immediate application of this text, which is difficult but wonderful when we understand it. So we saw that last week. If you weren't here last week and this text seems strange to you and it feels as though it's somehow applied slavery, that's not the case, you'll want to get that message from last week online. For most of us who are not slaves, can someone say thank you, Jesus? It's only the kindness of God that your life is your own. It's only the kindness and grace of God. For most of us who aren't slaves, we wonder how this text might apply to our lives. 
And for most of the life of the church, the history of the church, the church has done well to apply it to our vocational lives, to apply it to work, to being employees and employers, to having a job and to being managers and bosses and and working for other people. This is the experience of most of us, and this text has much to say about it. And if the things that Paul said in this text were true for slaves, how much more true for those who are paid a fair wage for the work that they do? So there's much in this text for those of us that have jobs, and we'll try to pull that out this morning, applying it to work. Some of us are happy in our jobs. Some of us can't wait to go to them. Others of us are dreading going to them. Most of us realize that we'll spend 70% of our waking hours at work. 70%. That's a lot of time. That's most of your life is going to be spent at work. And that can be difficult Work is not always easy with the work that it entails and the relationships and dealing with bosses and tasks and all these different things. And our attitude is not always the best about our jobs. I mean, let's be honest, even mine with my job, my attitude is not always the best. William Faulkner, who was that great American novelist and Nobel Prize winner, died in 1962. Listen to what he said in an interview in 1958 toward the end of his life. He said this, one of the saddest things is that the only thing that a man can do for eight hours a day, day after day is work. You can't eat eight hours a day, nor drink for eight hours a day, nor make love for eight hours. All you can do for eight hours is work, which is the reason why man makes himself and everybody else so miserable and unhappy. (laughs) That's funny, but there's something that resonates in that, right? We're going to spend most of our lives working. It's not always the funnest place to be. And therefore, we have all sorts of less than godly attitudes about our work environment, our workplace, and the way that we approach it. Here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. What if our text saves us from Faulkner's view? What if this text offers us something better than that miserable approach to work? What if the text gives us a greater hope in work? What if the text presents to us a transcendent view of work according to who God is and who we are in light of the gospel? What if it's not eight hours of misery? What if there's an opportunity in our lives every day to have eight hours of faithfulness? How might we feel at the end of the work day? How might we feel at the end of the week? How might we feel at the end of our lives if we look back and said, 70% of it, my waking hours, was a matter of faithfulness to God. That's what the text is trying to do for us this morning. It's trying to save us from work is drudgery and it's trying to present to us the possibility, let me say it tacitly, the possibility of work as worship. Maybe an easier way to say it, because that's a big hurdle for us to get at work as worship. Maybe an easier way to say it is work as imitation. 
imitators of God. After all, our God is the God who works. One of the wonderful things about our God is that we believe that our God is at work, even at this moment. And that God was at work in speaking all things into creation. And then God rested, as we also ought to do. But our God is a God who works with faithfulness, with integrity, with creativity, with skill, making wonderful things. Our God is a God who works. Now, the beginning of this passage, or at least sort of the middle beginning of it, was way back in chapter 5, verse 1, where he says to us, Beloved, as children of God, be imitators of God. As beloved children of God, be imitators of God. And we know that one of the goals of the Christian life is to imitate our Savior, right? That's what we want to do. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, is endeavoring to make us more like Christ. So what if work became for us an issue of imitation? And what if imitating God was one of the ways that we worship God? After all, he did make us in his own image. It says way back in Genesis 1, in his own image, he made them both male and female. What he said immediately after that in Genesis has to do with work. In Genesis 1.28, he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That has to do with work. Fill the earth and subdue it. The idea of subduing the earth is that of extracting things from it, working things in it that are of value. Okay, it's the idea of harvesting, mining, putting together, creating, bringing forth, presenting goods. Right after scripture says we were created in the image of God, God connects our image bearingness to our work lives. Fill the earth and subdue it. What that means is this, you've got to get this. We're going to talk more about this next week where we're going to present a, a more robust theology of work. But what that means is this, get this. Work is, in God's perspective, fundamentally good. Work is a good thing. Creating goods, services, buying, selling, transactions, working for someone, paying people to work for you. This is a fundamentally good thing. We sometimes think of it as being morally neutral. Well, work is just something you got to endure and it's morally neutral and you can either make it a good thing or you could kind of make it a bad thing. There's opportunity for good and there's great opportunity for evil as there is. But work is not morally neutral. God was speaking before the fall when he said, you are created in my image, therefore work, subdue the earth, be engaged in making things, buying and selling commerce, so on and so forth. It's not an issue with the fall. It's not like the fall happened. Dang it, now you're going to have to work. He did say work would be more difficult once the fall came. But he gave us work not as a product of the fall, but as a product of having been made in his image. So work is fundamentally good. Work is pleasing to God. All work. You know, there's a big problem within Christianity. And it's that we have created this false divide between what we see to be sacred, church work and missionary work and ministry, and what we see to be just secular, 
right? What we see to be ministry and what we see to be mundane. And we often think within the church that to please God, I somehow got to go into ministry or I got to go on the mission field or I got to serve on Sunday. I got to be in the nursery. I got to do all these things. But that is not what scripture says. Scripture doesn't say that anywhere. That's a false dichotomy. All work is ordained by God. All work is fundamentally good and meant to be pleasing to God. There's not in scripture anywhere a a divide between the sacred and the secular as it comes to work. You are meant to honor, image, and please God in your daily job, what you do right now. And that has tremendous potential to bring glory to God. That's what the text is going to tell us. Don't think that God somehow dismisses the way that you're going to spend 70% of your waking hours. 70% of your waking hours will be at work. God is intensely concerned about that. We're his sons and daughters. It's not as though God says, okay, I'll see you Sunday and I just won't do much with you till then. That's not the case. In fact, it is only what happens with the church on Monday that shows that what happens in church on Sunday is real. God is very concerned about the 70% of our lives that we spend at work. The Gospels are clear about this. Did you know that out of 132 public appearances of Jesus in the New Testament, 122 of them were in the marketplace? Of the 52 parables Jesus told, 45 had a workplace context. Of the 40 divine interventions recorded in Acts, 39 were in the marketplace. God is intensely concerned with where and how we work. How might it change our work if we believed at the end of the day, Christ himself, we're going to inspect it? How, How would that affect our record keeping, our cleaning, our serving, our plumbing, our carpentry? our driving, our teaching, the way that we run our books. If we believe that Christ, we're going to inspect it at the end of the day, how would that change the way that we work? Well, listen, brothers and sisters, the scriptures are clear. Christ will inspect our work at the end of the age. That is crystal clear in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we have done in this life, whether good or worthless. Do you think that when you stand before Christ at the end, not to be judged for your sins because he was already judged in your place on the cross, someone say, thank you, Jesus. He's already taken that judgment for us, not to be judged for sins if we put our faith in Christ, but to be judged according to our faithfulness in this life. Do you think that he'll only say, okay, so how was your church attendance? How was your giving? Did you ever go on a mission trip? That's not going to be the issue. He will be judging us according to our whole lives, whether or not we are faithful. And 70% of it for most of us will have been work. We're going to give an account for the way that we work and run our businesses. The text is getting at this and it ought to cause us to reconsider the way that we work. You see, Faulkner's attitude was clearly spawned by the fall. That was a fallish attitude. That was an attitude that was beset by 
tainted by, formed by sin. We, we get that. We all have those sort of thoughts. That attitude displays our, our rebellious nature in our sinful nature, our, our deceptive nature, and our apathetic nature. Right? Even those of us who are, it's not me, but some of you, who are far along the process of sanctification, okay? Some of you who are just growing in holiness in amazing ways. Don't you still deal, deal with, from time to time, a rebellious attitude, a deceitful attitude, and an apathetic attitude? And that's got lots of opportunities to show itself, but no better opportunity than in the work day. Rebelling against spicy bosses that we don't like, stealing a pen here and there, fudging the time card a little bit with this and that, and apathy. Who, who among us doesn't want to do the least they could do and have the most payoff? You see, but that was the mindset of Faulkner, and that's why for him, the work life looked like misery, drudgery, and sadness. But the text is calling us to something that is transcendent. Those attitudes are okay if work were a necessary evil, but it's not. It's a God-given good. And the text radically challenges those tendency and reorients the way that we ought to think about work. Verse 5. Slaves, we'll read it as employees now, since we're putting it in that context. Employees, be obedient to those who are your bosses, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. What verse 5 tells us is this. Do your work with sincerity. Okay, if you take notes, if you're a note taker, you should write that down. Do your work with sincerity. Notice that it says there with fear and trembling. Now that, that sounds weird to us, especially in the context of slaves. We're like, wait, is Paul telling the slaves to like fear and tremble before their masters? That's not the case. Think of the way that that phrase is used throughout scripture. Way back in Psalm 2, it says that we ought to worship the Lord in fear and sing praises to him with trembling. In uh, Philippians chapter 2, we're told to work out our salvation, right? To live out the implications of having been saved with fear and trembling. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that when I preached to you guys in Corinth, it was fear and trembling, with fear and trembling. So the idea is not this like, oh no, don't beat me thing. The idea is a seriousness, a respect, a sincerity. It's in the way that we worship the Lord, fear and trembling. It's in the way that we live out the implications of the gospel, fear and trembling. It's in the way that we do ministry, fear and trembling. And Paul is saying it's to be in the way that we do our work, fear and trembling that there's to be a sense of respect in the way that we approach it. He elaborates when he says, in the sincerity of your heart. Now notice that he calls masters, masters according to the flesh, employees according to the flesh. He's saying, in this lifetime, you might have that master or you might have that boss or that employer, but this lifetime is not all that there is. Flesh is fleeting, right? This lifetime is just a little bit. And then he puts it in context for us. And he says, as to Christ. In sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. 
Now that, that just changed everything. We're going to see him say that over and over again in the text. How are you to do your work? Do your work with sincerity as to Christ. You see how when he says as to Christ, that transcends your difficult circumstances, that transcends your persnickety manager, that transcends your stinky job, that transcends all the obstacles to have obstacles, obstacles to having sincerity of heart. The text is saying, I don't want you to do this just for your boss. I want you to do this for Jesus because he is the one to whom we are ultimately accountable. He is the one for whom we live. He's our Lord. He's not according to the flesh. He's according to eternity and our whole lives. So the idea of sincerity is that of not kissing up. Okay? The, the antonym of sincerity is hypocrisy. Do you know anybody at work like this? It's not you, I'm sure. But do you know anybody who at work, when the boss comes around, they're just kissing up to the boss. When the boss goes away, they're like, that guy is such a jerk. And then they act according to that real attitude, right? Why are they kissing up? They're kissing up because they're concerned about self-promotion. They're kissing up because they want more power, they want a better position, and they want more possessions. And so they're kissing up. But when the boss goes away, there's that attitude of what a jerk. When we're called to do this with sincerity, the idea literally in the Greek is singleness of heart. Don't be a hypocrite. You say, but I I, I can't do that in and of myself. I don't like my job and I don't like my boss. That is why the text says, as to Christ. You can't get this down. You can't reconsider the way you work unless you first realize your true identity in Christ, that we belong to him. And we're accountable to him. Therefore, do your work with sincerity as to Christ. When it calls us to do it with sincerity, you know what that's confronting? It's confronting that fallen condition of rebellion, that rebellious nature that we have. It's confronting this, saying, don't don't be rebellious in the workplace. Be sincere. Verse 6 Not by way of eye service as men pleasers but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Verse six is telling us to do our work with integrity. Verse five, do our work with sincerity. Verse six, do our work with integrity. I read a story some time ago about a a businessman who was, I forgot my hanky today, and this is a dish towel from the kitchen. (laughs) And it's not that clean. <laughs> I read a story some time ago about a businessman who was working in a third world amongst nationals who were very primitive. And he got them doing this project. They were working the land. And while he was there watching them, they worked unbelievably well, effective and powerful and got tons of work done. And he'd go, this is great. This, this is awesome. And he would leave for several hours and go do whatever bosses do. And then, don't you wonder? And then he would come back and they hadn't done anything since he left. And he's like, what? What is the deal here? And somehow he came up with the idea that he would put a pair of eyeballs on a log pointed toward the workmen. And when he left, he would say, I'm watching you. <laughs> and somehow in, in their primitive's mind, they were like, boss is watching. <laughs> and he would come back and they had done a tremendous amount of work. It actually worked. 
Now we know, come on, that's silly. That's a true story, but we know that's, that's just, who would fall for that? That's silly. Let me tell you what's more silly. What's more silly is to think that God himself will not inspect our work at the end of the age. That's more foolish. That's more naive. It's exactly what the text is saying. Doing the will of God from the heart as slaves of Christ. So when it says not by way of eye service as men pleasers, it means that we don't only work with integrity when the boss is watching. That's not what Christians do. We have a greater identity. We have a higher call. We have the truth of the gospel that has transformed the way that we think about who we are in relation to the world and the way that we work. So we don't do it to just, don't do things to try to impress the boss. No, we work with sincerity. And we don't do things to try to show him how much we're doing when he's watching. No, we work with integrity. So we don't steal from our employers. We don't only work hard when they're watching and then cut corners when they're not. We don't look for ways to fudge on the time card. We don't look for ways to float the books a little bit. We have a higher calling. After all, they're not our true masters. The text says we are slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God. That could only imply that it's God's will that where we spend 70% of our times, which, listen to me then, by nature is our most powerful place of witness. God's will is that we do that work with sincerity and with integrity. Now look at verse 7. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. Goodwill there in the New Living Translation, which I'm thankful for, is enthusiasm. So this last point is do your work enthusiastically. Do your work with sincerity. Do your work with integrity. And then verse 7, do your work enthusiastically. This is not some just fleshly call to work harder, but we wish that certain people would hear that, don't we? But this is actually God's upward call on your life. Do your work with goodwill. If you're going to do work, let it be good work. If you're going to do work, let it be hard work. Do your work with enthusiasm. You know where the word enthusiasm comes from? It comes from a Greek word, enthus, which means possessed by God. God in. En theos. En thus. Possessed by God. That's only true for the Christian. We have the living God in residence in us. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We are truly possessed by him. We are his blood-bought possession. Do your work as one who is possessed by God. Don't do your work the way the world does it, with hypocrisy and cutting corners and doing the minimum to get by. This text, verse 7, do your work with goodwill, says do the maximum that you could do. Do the maximum that you could do. Now, the motivation, again, is everything. 
It doesn't say do that, that you might be promoted. And if you get promoted, you could be a better witness. It's not saying that. It says clearly, with goodwill, with enthusiasm, render service as to the Lord. That is the motivation over and over again. As to the Lord, unto the Lord, as slaves of Christ, according to the will of God. Look what the scriptures are doing. The scriptures are saying that who you are in Christ has everything to do with the way that you work. And that ultimately we will give an account to God. And there's wonderful opportunity in that. Listen, God does not want you to give an account so that he could penalize you in some way. He wants to give you an account so that he might reward you. Jesus talked about it over and over again in the gospels. He's looking forward to, and we're looking forward to the day when we stand before him and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And then there's the reward for that. You can't escape that idea in the New Testament. In fact, it's in the next verse, verse eight. Knowing, okay, work with sincerity, work with integrity and work enthusiastically, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord as reward. Sometimes when we hear this concept of reward within Christianity, there's a a false religious impulse in us that thinks that that's base. We work according to reward in every other area of life, right? That's normal with our kids. Like do this and I'll give you a piece of candy, right? That's what we do. And bosses do that all the time. Perform well and you'll get a bonus, Right? We work with reward all the time. We treat our wives a certain way, hoping for a reward. We treat our husbands a certain way, hoping for a reward. All these different things, reward is normal to us. But somehow, when it comes to our relationship with God, our faithfulness in this life, and the judgment seat of Christ, we think that the promise of reward might be based. That's a false religious impulse in you. Listen to me. God is your father who loves you, and he loves to give good things to his children, and he wants to do it for eternity. And he has no shame in saying, if you're faithful with 70% of your time in the workplace, you will be rewarded in eternity. And he wants, yeah, praise God if you want to. If you're going to do it, do it though. Now, when the slave heard this in the first century, this was a hard passage to hear. This is a hard passage to hear. It's even hard for those of us that are thinking about it in connection with our jobs. Because, I mean, for a lot of us, we're like, Dude, I'm just working at Starbucks for like a few months. Who cares? Or I'm just turning wrenches or I'm just doing this or the other. Listen, the call here transcends all the circumstances and it connects it to the Lord. It's not asking you to love your supervisors. It's not asking you to love your bosses. It's not asking you to love your job. It's asking you to love the Lord. And working with sincerity, integrity, enthusiastically is the way that it looks like to love the Lord 70% of your waking hours. This is a call on the Christian because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done for us and the inheritance that we have reserved for us in heaven. And listen, If your job and your boss are a bummer, then there's even a greater chance to please the Lord. Turn with me to 2 Peter. Keep a finger here in Ephesians. Go to 2 Peter. We'll finish with this, more or less, kind of, a little bit. (laughs) Not really. 
Did I say first or second Peter? I meant first. I meant first Peter chapter two, the second chapter of the first epistle of Peter. Anybody in the front here have an NLT? No? You do? Can I use this, sweetie? Thank you. It reads well. Yeah, are you open to it? Okay. You could have opened it for me. You are? Okay, thanks. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Oh my gosh, I know I'm so mean. I'm so sorry. Oh, I feel bad. Okay, this reads well in the NLT. That's why I want it, sweetheart. I'm sorry. I was kidding. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2. Look what it says in 18, verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. You who are slaves must accept the authority of your masters with all respect. We'll read it again in our context that we're talking about. You who are employees must accept the authority of your bosses with all respect. Do what they tell you. Not only, here we go, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. Anybody here have a cruel boss? Raise your hand. Better not be on my staff. Who's raising your hand? (laughs) Oh, Cody, thanks. Verse 19. Okay, this is going to be, this is going to be strange to hear. For God is pleased with you when you do what you know is right and patiently endure unfair treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beaten for doing wrong, okay? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. There's the imperative. Look at the indicative, verse 21. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his footsteps. Verse 22, he never sinned nor deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Stop right there. You're listening to this and you're saying, dude, you don't know my job. You don't know my boss. It's terrible. This text says the worse things are, the greater opportunity you have to please honor and receive reward from the Lord. It says expressly, if you suffer for what is doing right, it pleases God. Now that's weird. We need to think about that. Why is that? Because God is a masochist. That's why. No, that's not why. It sounds masochistic, right? Doesn't it? It sounds strange. If you suffer for doing what is right, God is pleased. As if you do a good thing and you get punished before it and God's sitting up in heaven like, yeah, (laughs) that'll teach them sanctification. (laughs) That's not the situation. Why does the text say, if you've got a bad boss, you've got a bad job, you're suffering in work, but you do what is right, it pleases the Lord all the more? Why? Because what this is getting at is your commitment to good. Are you committed to good and doing good even when it costs you? Because most people will do the right thing if there's very little consequence. If there's very little cost, most people are willing to do the right thing. Most people are doing, willing to do the right thing if it's convenient. But God is calling us to do what is right and good even when it hurts. And again, He appeals to reward. This pleases God. And whenever you feel overwhelmed by that, just remember that Christ himself suffered more unjustly than any of us will ever suffer. 
And he's our example. You see, so we can't say, well, you don't know my circumstances. You don't know my boss. It pleases God and it tests our commitment to good. Because of what Christ did for us on the cross, are we willing to do what is right and good even when it hurts? That's what the text is getting at. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, thank you, brother. We have to be willing to say that we are, right? For the glory of God, because that's what is at stake here is the glory of God. This whole passage is tied to our witness. What Paul is trying to do is enable the church in Ephesians to show forth a better way to live, to show the world what it looks like to live as children of the light, as it said back in chapter five, to show the world a sample of the kingdom where there's harmony between husbands and wives mutually submitted to one another, where children are obeying and fathers are instructing and rightly teaching their kids and where employees are working and doing their jobs with, with sincerity, integrity, and enthusiasm. What is at stake is witness. In fact, in Titus, you want to turn there real quick? Titus, do you know how to find the T's in the New Testament? All the T's are together in the New Testament. Remember I taught you grandma eats popcorn? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. After she eats popcorn comes the T's. All the T's are together. Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. Look at Titus chapter 2. Oh, I want your NLT again for this one. Thanks, buddy. It just communicates so well, and he's open to it. Who is this kid? He's sharp. (laughs) Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Slaves, employees, must always obey their masters, bosses, and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Stop right there. That's, That's a tough call. That's a tough call, and it feels unfair. And listen, if your life was all about you, it is unfair, but life isn't about you. We exist for the glory of God. And so it says in the next breath, then they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive in every way. What is 70% of your waking hours for? It's not for a paycheck. It's not to gather and accumulate more. It's to make the gospel of Jesus Christ more attractive. How do we do it? By working with sincerity, integrity, and enthusiastically. Timothy, who's right before Titus in his first epistle in the sixth chapter, says the same thing in the first verse. 1 Timothy 6.1, he says, All slaves should show full respect for their masters so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching." so that they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. So what's at stake with this? God's glory, faithful witness, and eternal reward. Though the text has been challenging this morning, now I'm truly finished. Though the text has been challenging this morning, there's such great promise in it. I mean, think how it just causes us to reconsider the way that we work. It's not just about your job. It's about the glory of God. 
It's not just about getting along with the circumstances. It's about being a faithful witness that people might see the light of the gospel of God and Jesus Christ. And it's not just about a paycheck. It's about eternal reward that pleases our heavenly father. It may be that as you've heard these things this morning, you realize you need to repent. I'm sure all of us do to one degree or another. Who, who hasn't lacked sincerity, integrity, and enthusiasm in their work from time to time? If you need to repent today, then the call is to repent. And then, oh, employers, you thought you had escaped. <laughs> but in verse 9 of our text, it said this, Masters, do the same things to them, knowing that you both have a master in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So in the same way that the employees are called to sincerity, integrity, and enthusiasm, employers are called to deal with those who work for them with sincerity, integrity, and enthusiasm. So give your employees a raise today. (laughs) If you haven't been doing those things, then employers, bosses, managers, you also need to repent. Let me tell you the wonderful hope that's here. Faulkner's quote was a sad one. This text is a happy one. It doesn't have to be eight hours of drudgery, though it may feel that way. It can truly be eight hours of faithfulness that are fruitful and effective for the glory of God, the good of the world, and our heavenly reward. That's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. So today, after you repent, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. You need, I need, we need his help to live out this text. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that it challenges and confronts us, encourages, and again, by the Holy Spirit, transforms us. And we just ask the Holy Spirit, you would allow us as we enter into the throne room now and exalt Christ in our hearts and minds to have some real sober moments of thinking about the way that we've worked and that you would lead us to reconsider the way that we're doing that for your glory because we belong to you according to our identity as the beloved of God. As you show us those places where we're cutting corners and being hypocrites and doing the least to get by, Give us grace to repent and then give us power to live differently by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.